Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here and uh, welcome. Um, appreciate Isabel being put on the spot to do that for us. She did a great job and very thankful for her ministry. Um, last night we had the Spanish Fellowship group. They're large group. The Lord's doing some really cool work. There's a church planter that's being approved through our North American Mission Board partners that should be coming. And so God's doing some cool stuff. It's been in the making for a lot of years. A lot of years we've prayed for a Hispanic work here in Bloomington. Um, right before COVID, we almost launched one and then COVID hit and the planter got stuck in Guatemala for eight months because he couldn't get back. And so that's a whole nother story. But we're grateful that the Lord has seen fit to bring this back around. Uh, this morning, we've been in our new series, um, and it's in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and 2 Chronicles. And the series is called In the Lord's Sight. And this is a phrase that you'll see throughout 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and 2 Chronicles. Um, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and 2 Chronicles, those books are about uh, the kingship of Israel. So it walks through all the different kings of Israel, talks about why they had a king, kind of lays that history all out, of course, pointing to the fact that none of those kings were good enough, we need a heavenly king, and pointing to the fact that we need a king, and the king that would come, Jesus, would not be like any king Israel wanted or thought they would have. And he was a king that came, and he was righteous and perfect and good in the Lord's sight because he was the Lord. And he came to give sight to the blind, to us. And so all the way through the book, you'll see this phrase, in the Lord's sight, when God is talking about each king. So this king did what was evil in the Lord's sight. This king did what was good in the Lord's sight. And that's what we've been looking through. And then the other phrase you'll see a lot is the idea of the high places. And you'll see this phrase all the way through that even though these kings may have done what was right, very few kings were ever willing to take on and tear down the high places because it was just too costly. They knew that it could cost them their kingdom. They knew that the people wouldn't be happy, and so they didn't challenge the status quo. And there were a few that did, and they paid the price. Um, in our culture, everybody is trying to get people to see them. That's what social media is, right? Look at me, look at me. The kings of Israel were no different. They, they said they wanted people to look at God, but when you look at their kingship so often, it was about getting people to see them and twisting what was, hey, look at this, but saying, oh yeah, yeah, that's for God. This morning as we look at Solomon, last week we looked at God's heart. We looked at David's heart. We looked at Solomon's heart. We talked about our hearts. This week, what I want to look at is the question that God says to Solomon as he takes over for his father David, the famous king, and he asks Solomon, what should I give you? Let me ask you, if God was to come to you and ask you, hey, Matt, hey, Jesse, hey, Clint, what should I give you? What would be your response, right? I mean, my response, the first thing when I was studying this, the first thing I thought of is three more wishes, you know what I mean? Like, I want unlimited wishes, right? It's like the genie. Like, why doesn't anyone ever wish for unlimited wishes? You know, I mean, Aladdin, he told it, you can't wish for that. That doesn't work. But anyway, like, so when I read that, it's like, what should I give you? And Solomon's response is really indicative, like we looked at last week. It's indicative of his heart, and it goes straight to the motive 
because it shows us what we really want, what we really expect, and what we think that God will give us that will fulfill our emotions, our dreams, our passions, and everything else. But here's the deal. All through Scripture and all through the kings of 2 Kings, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, here's the deal. Once the people get what they want, they forget the Lord, and then they just try to keep the Lord around so they don't lose the stuff they have, and then when they lose the stuff they have because they didn't listen to the Lord, they blame the Lord for taking the stuff. Sound familiar in your life? Right? Does it sound familiar that you're the type of person that's like, oh God, I want this. And then you get it and you're like, oh, I'm afraid he'll take it from me. So then you like get consumed with praying God won't take it from you. And then God does take it because everything gets taken at some point. Like even loved ones, they die. I'm going to die. Like it's going to happen. Everything in this world gets taken at some point. And then we're like mad at God. And he's like, well, I told you this is the way it works. And that's what we find as we dive into Solomon. Now remember, God never wanted his people to have a king. We read this last week. I'm going to, like every week, I got to remind us of this. This is what God said in Deuteronomy, in one of the oldest books of the Bible, in the original book of the law. He said, hey, you will ask someday that we want a king over us like all the nations around us. And then he says he must not acquire any of these things, which we'll look at this week. Solomon acquired all the things God said not to acquire. And he says, he is to write a copy of this instruction and read from it all the days of his life. We have no record that Solomon did that. And then we're to learn to fear the Lord, his God, and observe all of the words written in the word, which Solomon didn't do that because had he done it, he would have memorized this passage and he would have done this one. So Solomon gets what God wanted him to have, but then he doesn't use it properly. And then it says, if he doesn't do this, then what's going to happen is his heart is going to be exalted above his country. In other words, the reason I don't want him to do this is because if he goes after these things, he's going to get prideful. His heart's going to go above his countrymen, the king, and he will not turn, um, and then he won't turn from the command of the right or the left and he and his sons will continue ruling for many years over Israel. In other words, God's saying, look, if you do this, if you obey me, if you walk with me, that's my longing. In Samuel 8, it says, listen to the people. Samuel is now a prophet. The people have gone through the Old Testament. They've gone through the judges. They've come to Samuel. And now it's finally time to fulfill the prophecy of Deuteronomy. Samuel comes and says, I can't believe they're asking for a king. Why are they asking for a king? And God says, listen to the people. And everything they say to you, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king, which is why they want another king. Then they said, we will be like the other nations. Our king will judge us. Go out before us and fight our battles. And if we're honest, most of the time when we present the gospel to people in our culture, we present to them that, hey, why don't you accept this king because he'll do everything for you. And that is not the gospel. Jesus invites us on a mission to be his people in a world and in a battle that we are thrust in. And so this is what God's people are constantly trying to tell God what he should give them. All the time, when you read the scripture, God's people are, when Jesus came, they always told Jesus, this is what we expect from you. You give us this. You do a sign. You do a miracle. We are always demanding 
from God. And God is in heaven and saying, does anyone just want to worship me? I'm God. I'm the creator of the universe. Nope. I just want stuff from you. There's no worse relationship to be in than that. There's no worse relationship than to be with someone who just wants your stuff and wants what you give them, but they don't want to spend any time with you. They don't want to get to know you. They don't want to love you. They don't just want to do life together. No, 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 no. I'll do life with you as long as, and then I'm done. And that's exactly what God's people do, and it's exactly what we do if we're really honest so often deep in our hearts. I mean, we even train people to be this way in our churches today to demand from things from God and tell him what he's supposed to do. And your promises said this, and so you do it. That's exactly how they crucified Jesus. They literally looked at Jesus and said, these are all the promises we've got figured out from the Old Testament. You don't meet the standard, so go to the cross. And we train people to do the same stuff today. God says, you won't listen to the prophets and the judges, so fine, I'll give you a king. Here you go. But when I give him to you, You also get all the consequences of a king. You see, Jesus came as a king, the complete opposite of the kings we see here. He did not exalt himself. He did not amass treasures. He did not do what the people expected. He obeyed every part of this. Yet, we try to make Jesus into an earthly king just like the kings of the Old Testament. We're just like the people of God making our demands of God and the king we want him to be in our lives. When he has given us clarity on who he wants us to be and who he is. So as we dive in, in 1 Kings 3, this is the story. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. By marrying Pharaoh's daughter, Solomon brought her to live in the city of David until he finished building his palace, the Lord's temple, and the wall around Jerusalem. But Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh from the city of David to the house he had built for her. For he said, my wife must not live in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places, because the places, the, uh, the ark of the Lord has come into our holy. The first thing Solomon does when he becomes king is he says, I got to have a queen. I can't do this alone. Got to have some. I got to have a queen. God's not good enough. And he chooses an Egyptian queen. God said, never go back to Egypt to his people. Never. He said, never make a treaty with Egypt. Don't go back there. I've delivered you from that slavery. Don't go back to it. How many times has God delivered you from things in your life and you keep going back to try to find the same meaning, the same purpose, the same joy, and the same old garbage? That's Solomon. The first thing he does when he becomes king is he goes and gets a wife from a nation he's not supposed to have a be with, and he makes a treaty with a nation he's not supposed to make a treaty with. That's the first thing Solomon thinks is wise to do, which tells you he didn't know the Bible because the Bible said not to do that. Or if he did know it, he just ignored it, like we do. And so, I mean, this is not starting out well. This is not the way to start your kingdom, okay? It goes on. And it says he ends up building a palace for her. And then he ends up realizing at one point, he's like, oh, I can't have a foreigner living near the holy thing, so I have to move her away. That's an admission of guilt. Later in Kings, in chapter 20, it's like, oh, 
darn, she can't be an Israelite. She can't be close. I have to move her away. And listen, they stay married their entire lives as far as we know. Solomon didn't get rid of her. Like, he committed to her, and it was a disaster. It caused a huge mess in the nation. I mean, this is crazy. Marriage, starting out this way, maybe some of you started it out that way. Maybe some of you are longing to have that queen or that king in your life. You don't care what God says or who it should be or how they should live or I'm just lonely. Got to have somebody. Everybody else got a queen. Everybody else has got a king. All the other nations got it. All the other people got it. Let me ask you, why isn't God good enough for you? Why isn't he good enough? He goes on and says this, God in his great mercy, it goes on to say, however, the people were sacrificing on the high places. Because until that time, the temple for the Lord's name had not been built. Again, the high places. These were places that they, they thought if they got higher, if they went to higher places and bigger places, that that got them closer to God. You do the same thing. We, have, we do this in stadiums. If we just get 80,000 people together, then God will hear us. God hears you right now. Where two or more are gathered, I'm there. You don't need 80,000. And we run and talk about how great that was and oh, it's amazing. And then we come to our churches on Sunday like, oh, this is so terrible. Man, this wife stinks. I want the 80,000 wife. She's awesome. This is what we do. And we have to be very careful because Solomon built this and it was a disaster. He ended up at the end of his life absolutely miserable. Don't forget that. He wrote an entire book that we studied last Uh, The last time, Ecclesiastes, and he goes on, he says, Solomon loved the Lord by walking in the statutes of his father David. Notice it doesn't say he walked in God's statutes. He just did what daddy did. He didn't ask, what did daddy not do that I should be doing? What's the statutes of the Bible? No, 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 I'm just going to do what dad did. I'm going to do what my church does. I'm just going to do whatever my denomination says. He didn't go back to the word of God and ask, what did my father do well? What didn't he do well? I tell my kids all the time, you're going to need counseling because I'm a disaster. You need God's word. You need God's people. You need his church. You need people to help you because you're just as messed up as I am and you're going to mess your kids up and we got to go back to the word of God. He goes on and he says, he loved the Lord, but he also sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. God. God, where's the sacrifice? Where did God say to make the sacrifices for him? In the tabernacle. It's been there since they got delivered from Exodus. They let, that's where you make the sacrifices. And instead, we got a better way to worship. We're going to make sacrifices on all the mountains to prove how holy and awesome and how great we are. We're going to, we're going to go everywhere to show God our faithfulness. God never asked him to do that. He said to go to Jerusalem. He said to travel there three times a year with your family. I mean, he never asked them to do that. We do the same thing. We want to do some big thing for God. How about you just show up at Jerusalem? Show up to church. Do simple. Just love God and his people. Why why do we got to show something big? God's big enough. He will make big things out of nothing. 
which we'll see today. He goes on, he says, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there because it was the most famous high place. Oh, Solomon's going to the Passion Conference right here. Passion 2023, Solomon's there, and he's bringing a thousand people with him. Like, I got a thousand in my youth group that's coming, baby. He goes on, he says, at Gibeon, look at this, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God asked, what should I give you? In other words, Solomon, what are you chasing? You're here with your entourage and doing this big thing, big whoop de doo dah You're going to go back tomorrow, and it's just going to be like normal. The feeling's going to be gone, the flash is going to be gone, and you're back to just having to be a king. What should I give you, Solomon? This is God's incredible mercy. He sees Solomon going a bad way. He's not reading God's word. He's not obeying Deuteronomy. He's got a foreign wife from Egypt with a treaty. And God, in his great mercy, shows up in Solomon's life and says, hey, what would you like? I don't know about you, but I had that moment in my life, my freshman year, when I cried out to God. I cried out to God. Solomon is trying to cry out to God the best he knows how. He's going to the high place. He's trying to cry out at least. And God says, well, thank you. I'll meet you there. That doesn't mean you should keep doing this. God in his incredible mercy will show up in the weirdest places. Talk to people who know Jesus and have been saved and met him in a bar. They had a vision in a bar. Or like they got shared the gospel in some random place. And you're like, how? Because that's how merciful God is. He wants to warn us. He loves us. He's looking at us and saying, listen to me. It's amazing to me that God meets Solomon like this in his heart. Solomon said, you've shown great and faithful love to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, righteousness, and integrity most of the time. <laughs> David wasn't perfect. And then it says, you have continued this great and faithful love for him by giving him a son to sit on his throne as it is today. My Lord God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Look at Solomon's response. Solomon's response is, it's all about you, God. It's, a, it, it's all about those who went before me. I'm nothing. I, I just got, like, born. <laughs> and then given the kingdom <laughs> out of nowhere. Like, at least Solomon's honest. He's still trying to show off and be like, oh, mister, I'm making a thousand and, you know, sacrifices on the high place. But when God shows up, he's like, I... I you're everything, I'm nothing. I, I, owe, I owe everything to people behind me. I got, I'm nothing. That's a great heart. And then he says, look, Solomon says, yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. I wish more people would say this. We have a youth culture that celebrates youth and kills the gray hairs which is the opposite of Scripture. Young people, you're dumb. I'm just telling you, you are. Solomon recognizes, like, I'm, I'm dumb. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have enough wisdom. I think I have wisdom, but then I just mess it all up. I've married an Egyptian queen. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what I'm doing. That is a healthy place to be as a young person. It is. Just admit it. Be like, I recognize that I'm here and it's not about me. I didn't do anything good to get here. My parents, somebody shared the gospel with them. We shared the gospel. Like, it's a miracle I'm alive. I could have died 20 times. Like, that's the heart we should have. 
And then he says, your servant is among your people you have chosen. Look at that. I'm your servant. I'm not some king. You're king. No, I'm, I'm just a servant. And I just happen to be in this church and these people. Like, I, I'm just here among these people. And then he says, a people too numerous to count, to be numbered or counted. God always told his people not to take censuses. Only a couple of times did God say to take a census. You know what's amazing to be about the modern church is we're always counting numbers. Why? For what reason? What motive? Because Solomon says they're as numerous as possible, and later we find Solomon making a lot of counting when he shouldn't. Then he goes on, he says, so give your servant, look at this, an obedient heart to judge your people and discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? If I hear one more person talk about how bad the church is, I'm going to pull my hair out, and I don't have much left to pull. That's probably why I've lost it all. God's people are amazing. Because God is amazing. It doesn't mean we don't have issues. It doesn't mean they're not a mess. But I am tired of hearing people say things like, well, it's about a relationship with Jesus, not a religion. Jesus was the most religious person to ever walk the face of the earth. He obeyed all almost 700 of the Old Testament laws perfectly. He never missed a Sabbath. He always traveled to Jerusalem. He did everything religiously perfect. I get what you say or what people mean when they say, well, it's about a relationship, not religion. Yeah, we don't get saved by our works. That's what Solomon's realizing. He's like, I'm not saying, your people are your people. You chose them. I like, Solomon's admitting that. So be careful when you hear those people say it's not about religion. Most of the people who say it's not about religion, the reason they say it is because they don't want to be held accountable to the consequences of a relationship with God. He goes on. He says, what are you asking for, Solomon? You know, we love to act like we're smart. We love to act like we can make good judgments. We're so prideful, so self-assured. Can I just tell you, age and life will humble the bejeebers out of you. Age and life will show you how dumb you are. I promise. I mean, you will make the same mistake 20 times and be like, I'm never going to learn. I did it again. Like I wrote it down on a piece of paper. I even tied a little string on my finger and I still didn't remember to do it right. You are so desperate for someone that's not like you, that's otherworldly, a God. And Solomon realizes it. And the reason Solomon asks for judgment is because he realizes that his primary role as a king is going to be trying to determine what's right and wrong and he's going to have to judge the people and he knows that's hard to do. Because you can be either a terrible judge that just kills people and you're mean and cruel, or you can be a lenient judge that just lets people get by with everything and then they kill everybody and are cruel. And Solomon realizes, I don't know how to do this. That is a great place to be in your relationship with God. Is desperate for him to show you his good judgments, what's right and wrong. It's a good place for you to be. James says it this way in the New Testament. He says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. You do not have because you don't ask. Oh, wait. You do ask. But you 
ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. How about instead when you ask and you pray and you ask things from God, maybe you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is for you, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So it is a sin for the person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. And Solomon's getting ready to do a lot of sin. We're going to see in a minute. You know, stop chasing what you don't know. Stop chasing what you think you know. Stop chasing what you think you need to know and chase God. Say, God, I w- what do I want from you? What should I get? I want you. Because if I got you, then the rest I got. And see, Solomon realizes this. Look at God's response. Now, it pleased the Lord that Solomon requested this. I love that. If you want to please the Lord, request what Solomon requested and have the heart for why he requested it. Say, God, I I just want to make the right decisions. I want to judge rightly, which means I want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people and tell them about the judgment of God. That if they don't know him, they will spend eternity separated from him. I didn't write the book. That's the right judgment. That's what I want to do. I want to make the right judgments. I don't want to be wrong. So God, help me. And when it is wrong, help me to endure the wrongness the mess of it all. And then God says, so God said to him, because you've requested this, look at this, and did not ask for long life, right? God heal me. Just want to be healed of this disease, this sickness. So he didn't ask for that. Because you didn't ask for riches for yourself. Well, God, I just, if I could just get a new car, if I could just, just one thing, just, you know, how much is enough? Well, a little bit more. How much is enough? A little bit more. That's the trap. And then he goes on, he says, or the death of your enemies. God, I just wish you'd take them out. I'm so tired of these people. If they were all out of my life, if, if this person, if I wasn't married to them, if these kids were gone, I mean, then I'd, I'd be happy. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. You'd still be miserable. Because it's not about them. And God says, because you didn't ask for those things, he says, you asked for discernment, for yourself to understand justice. I will therefore do what you have asked. And I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like you before and never will be again. The wisest human to ever live except Jesus who is the son of God. And then he says, in addition, look at this, in addition, I will give you what you did not ask for, both riches and honor so that no man in any kingdom will be your equal during your entire life. If. Notice that the first covenant God makes with Solomon and answers his prayer, he says, this I'm not taking away. This is an eternal promise. You will, as long as you live, have supernatural wisdom given from me that I will never take from you. That's the gospel of Jesus. When we come to know Christ, he says, you are mine. I have bought you with a price. I'm not selling you back. You're mine. But then there are the if clauses in our relationship with Jesus in terms of our life. And so he looks and he says, these other things are conditional, Solomon. Do you want to please the Lord? Do you want to walk with him? Because if you do that, then you'll stop asking for the other stuff. 
He goes on, he says, if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and commands just as your father David did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon woke up and realized it had been a dream. He went to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he held a feast for all his servants. What does Solomon do when he realized he met with God? Did he offer another thousand sacrifices at the Passion Conference? He went back to the local church. He went back to Jerusalem. He went back to simple. He went back to where God resided and he said, God, I'm here. And he just went back and did simple sacrifices. He didn't take a, that say, say he took a thousand. He's like, you know, I just went back and made a sacrifice. Yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. It's a beautiful thing. So then Solomon gets tested. Here's the test. Two women who were prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. So now we're going to see if Solomon's wise. One of the women said, please, Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I had a baby while she was in the house. On the third day after I gave birth, she also had a baby, and we were, we were alone. The woman whose son, so that, that's the first part. So here's the story. Two women come in. They're prostitutes. Prostitutes were to be killed and stoned in Israel according to the Old Testament law. They were living in a brothel. Why is there a brothel in God's people's kingdom? This is the promised land. They're like, they govern themselves. They're allowing brothels to exist. Like, this story is so messy. They both have a son. One dies. The other one stays alive. And the one woman, what ends up happening, steals the baby of the other woman in the middle of the night. And now she's claiming your baby was the dead baby. And now they have to get a decision. Solomon could have responded this way. Excuse me, your prostitutes, take them out and stone them. Problem solved. Someone can adopt the baby. You guys are prostitutes, you're dead. We don't do that here. Tear down the brothel. Could have done that, he's the king. That would have been just. He also could have said, you know, this matter is so insignificant. I gotta do important king stuff. I don't wanna deal with these prostitute brothel stuff. You know, give that to some underling. Let the priest handle that. Solomon doesn't either. Solomon is great wisdom. He doesn't even address those issues, which is what everybody thought he would do. This is what Jesus did all the time. People came to him with questions, and then Jesus would like bring up another issue and be like, what do we do with that? Right? Remember when Jesus, a woman caught in adultery, was brought to him? They were ready to stone her, and he just said, okay, yeah, that's great. That's, I, I agree. We can stone her. I just ask that whichever one of you is without sin, you throw the first stone and then we'll go from there. And then he started writing in the dirt, probably people's sins in the dirt. So you know, John over there, he picks up a stone, he's like, and then John looks, he goes, oh, that, he just wrote my name and said, oh, you, you throw it. Like, likely that's what happened. And Jesus looked at the woman after all of her accusers went away and he said, go and sin no more. He didn't say prostitution's fine. You just go back to your life. He's like, don't do this anymore because I may not be here to rescue you again. Solomon has a sword brought to him. He says, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna cut the baby in half and you both get a half of the baby. The woman whose child it wasn't said, that's a great idea. If I can't have it, nobody can have it. You don't think you've had that heart before? God, why do they get that? Why do they have the retirement? Why do they have the good life? Why do they have the big church? Why do they have the good husband? Why do they, why do they, why do they? God, I just want you to cut them in half. 
But the woman whose child it was, her response was, stop. She can have my child. She, she can have the baby. I'm, I'm out. I, I do not want my baby killed. And Solomon said, that's the real mother. That's an incredible wise decision as a king. You didn't act in haste and righteousness, and we're going to go get all the brothers and kill everybody, and you didn't just ignore it, and you made a, like, and everyone was amazed, it says, by Solomon's ability to do this. Jesus said it this way, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. There was no peace between these two women. Solomon had to make a decision. He didn't split the baby in half and give them both half and say, there, you're at peace. Everybody's equal. He said, no, 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 I did not come to bring peace. I come to bring a sword. A king with a sword? king that brought us, hmm. And then he says, for I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. The brothel, the household, they're enemies of one another. And then it says, The person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it. And anyone losing his life because of me will find it. That woman said, I don't need the life of my son because I want him to find life. I will give up my life. I will give up my rights so that someone else can have life. That is the gospel. And Solomon recognized that woman's understanding, even basic, of the gospel. And the sword is what made it show up. And the sword will make it show up in your life. It'll show you what you really want. It'll show you what you think God should give you. It's a beautiful picture. First Kings goes on, says, King Solomon in 4.1 ruled over Israel. And these were the officials. Solomon had 12 deputies for all of Israel. They provided food for the king and his household. Each one made provision for one month out of the year. And there was one deputy, verse 19, in the land of Judah. Welcome to the bureaucratic state. You got 12 guys making sure the power and the bureaucracy is all taken care of. And you got one guy that's got to take care of all the people. I'm glad we don't live in a country like that. We do, by the way. Like Solomon is already making bad decisions. He's already not organizing the leadership according to the tribes that are supposed to be organized in the Old Testament. They're supposed to be organized by tribe and tribes have leaders. And like it's all laid out in the first five books of the Bible in the, in the Torah. It's, it's right there. And Solomon ignores it and decides he's going to create his own power structure. He's going to do it his way. It's like, Solomon, what are you doing? Well, this is what the other nations do. All the kings have their entourage. They get well taken care of. And then the peasants, you know, they... You're not supposed to be like the other nations. See, it all becomes about the machine eventually. You know, the modern churches, this is what happens in modern churches. Pastors surround themselves with yes men. They're untouchable. They're the anointed. They get the big bucks and everybody else is under them, propping them up, making sure all their CDs and books get sold so they can all benefit from it together like they did with Solomon. No one ever, we have no record of Solomon ever being warned by any advisors in his entire kingship. David had Nathan who warned him all the time. 
Solomon did not surround himself with the right people. He surrounded himself with yes men. He surrounded himself that were about building and building and building and no one to challenge him. And why challenge him? Because if I challenge him, then I'm not going to get rich. If I challenge him, I'm not going to get the benefits. If I challenge him, then I'm going to have to go fight the enemies. And I don't want to fight. I just like hanging out here in Jerusalem, hanging out in the, in the empire. It's kind of nice. We got it pretty good. Let's not rock the boat. It goes on and says this. Second Chronicles 1.14. Second Chronicles and Kings have the same stories back and forth. We'll be jumping between the stories because they're the same in a lot of ways. Solomon accumulated 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, which he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedar as abundant as sycamore in the Judean foothills. Solomon's horses came from Egypt and Kew. The, the king's traders would get them from Kew at the going price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 15 pounds of silver and a horse for about four pounds. In the same way, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of Aram through their agents. If you read the Old Testament, God's people aren't supposed to have any of these things. God said you are not to have chariots. You are not to have horses. He told the kings, no chariots, no horses. That's not the kind of God I am. I'm not making a war machine. You're just going to have to trust me. You're going to march out as soldiers and like I'm going to have to bring the nukes. That's what we see with Joshua when he went into the promised land. He didn't have, they literally didn't even have weapons. Like they marched around a city seven times and on the seventh day they're like, and the city falls down and it's over. Solomon is not, he, he again, he's looking at the world and he's saying, oh, it's going well. I need some more chariots. I need some more horses. I need to get some more gold. We just read where it said, do not amass for yourselves gold in Deuteronomy. Did we not? See, we don't want people in our lives telling us not to do these things because we got to figure it out and that chariot's really helping me and that gold's got a future and la, 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 we don't want anybody challenging that and nobody will challenge us, especially today in our church because deep down inside, I want that radio ministry too. I want to write those books. I want to get wealthy and give it to my grandkids. I want to do these things and so we will not challenge our hearts to God. Just like Solomon and the people. It's easy to point a finger at everybody else. It's really difficult to point it back to yourself. You know, we like to point fingers at somebody who has a lot of gold, but I just have a little gold. Why do you have any? See, we, we need to ask these questions because we have forgotten the Lord. And these are things he told the king you are not supposed to have. You're not supposed to go to Egypt. You're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to have a relationship with the Hittites. You were supposed to kill them all when you went in the promised land. They were one of the groups of people God sent to wipe out, get rid of them. Like either they flee or they die. They have two choices. A choice is not let them stay and trade with them. Bad choice. That's not what God said to do. First Kings goes on. Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that he had been anointed king in his father's place. For Hiram had always been friends with David. Be careful who your friends are. Solomon sent this message to Hiram. You know that my father David was not able to build a temple for the name of Yahweh his God. This was because of the warfare all around him until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. That is a lie. That is not what God said. We'll see it in a minute. The Lord my God has now given me rest all around. There is no enemy or crisis. Yeah, there is. There's a seriously spiritual crisis with spiritual enemies and you're ignoring it. 
You've created a false peace with Egypt, with all these nations. You've created a false peace. And then he goes on and he says, so I plan to build a temple for the name of Yahweh my God. We'll slap God's name on anything. So does Solomon. And then he goes on, he says, according to what the Lord promised my father David. This is not what God promised. I will put your son on a throne in your place and he will build the temple for my name. That is not what God said. You don't believe me? 2 Samuel 7. So Nathan the king told the king, go and do all that is on your heart for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said, hold on, Nathan, you shouldn't have said that. Bad decision. Don't tell him he gets whatever he wants from whatever on your heart. No, it's a bad decision to tell him that. So Nathan has to go back and say, Go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build a house for me to live in? That's a rhetorical question that the answer is no. If someone says, if if you're a kid and your dad comes to you and says, did I tell you to go play outside instead of clean your room? The answer is, no, you didn't. You told me to clean my room. So it's a rhetorical question. He says, look at this. Are you to build a house? And then he says, from the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not lived in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, I have never, ever asked anyone among the tribes of Israel whom I've commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? David, where'd you get this idea from? You wonder where David got the idea? David built himself a really nice palace, and then it looked really bad that God lived in a tent. It says that when you go read the book. And instead of David thinking, hey, maybe I should live in a tent, he's like, well, to make my palace look good, I gotta build a big church. Because my big mansion I got, I gotta build a big church to match the big mansion I built and the fancy cars, so I gotta fancy it up so that because I can't let God live in a tent and I live in a mansion, that's gonna look bad for me. And this is what the Lord told David. The Lord declares to you, the Lord Himself will make a house for you. Who's gonna make the house? Solomon? No, the Lord's going to make the house. But, but, the, but how's the Lord going to make a house? You see, we don't want to deal with the reality of these things. He goes on and says this in 1 Kings. At the end of 20 years during which Solomon had built the two houses, the Lord's temple and the royal palace, Hiram king of Tyre had supplied him with the cedar and cypress logs and gold for every wish. King Solomon gave him 20 towns in the land of Galilee. Under that, underline that in your Bible. That is not a small thing that he gave him towns in Galilee. We'll see it in a minute. And then he says, so Hiram went out from Tyre to look over the towns that Solomon had given him, but he was not pleased with them. So he said, what are these towns you've given me, my brother? So he called them the land of Kabul, as they are still called today. Now Hiram had sent the king, 9,000 pounds of gold. The word Kabul, it means good for nothing. That's what the word means, good for nothing. You see, he gave me 20 towns. It was illegal, according to Leviticus 25, 23, for the king to give away, for anyone to give away God's promised land because it wasn't the people's land to give. It was God's land. It was illegal for Solomon to do this. 
And he did it because he spent all the gold that David had amassed to build the temple, to build his chariots, and now he's low on gold, so he makes a deal to get more gold from Hiram. And he literally gives God's people away when he was told never to do that because it's not your land. Yahweh owns the land. Then he goes on. And here's the great part about this story. All the way until Jesus' time, everybody believed that Galilee and specifically Nazareth was good for nothing. And then the Lord raises up a king and he comes out of Galilee, of Nazareth. Even his disciples said this, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. You see, everything that Solomon does, everything that we try to build, it's amazing to me that God in his great mercy and grace redeems it. Sometime, eventually, he turns it around. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's the hope that I have when I read about Solomon's life and I see myself like Solomon. I'm like, oh, that's me. Oh, and it's like there's hope because we have a king that came from the good-for-nothing place. Jesus specifically lived in Nazareth and in Galilee. So he could redeem it back, what Solomon had given away that Solomon was never supposed to give away. And Jesus redeems us back when we've given ourselves away. Man, what a picture of the gospel. And then it goes on and says, The Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. God fulfilled his covenant. Solomon didn't obey the if clause. This is not saying this is good. Like we look at this and go, oh, that's good. Like Solomon got wisdom and there was a peace treaty. Yay. No. Solomon, you get the wisdom, you messed up on the if clause. Too bad. It's going to cost you later. It's going to cost your sons. See, we read these passages and we automatically assume it's good. That if, that if it's wealth, if it's prosperity, if things are working out, if there's peace, if there's comfort, well, then that must be God. But if there's hardship, oh, then we must have sinned. We must have done something wrong. It's not the gospel. It goes on to say in chapter 5, Then King Solomon drafted forced labors from all Israel. The labor force numbered 30,000 men. He sent 10,000 to Lebanon each month in shifts. Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had 70,000 porters, 80,000 stonecutters in the mountains, not including his 3,300 deputies in charge of the work. They ruled over the people doing the work. This is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon had imposed to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the supporting terraces, the walls of Jerusalem, and Hazar, and Megiddo, and Gezer. This is not a positive thing. God's people were not supposed to be forced into labor by their own people. We, we pay a workman what he's worth. We don't force them. This was wicked. Solomon is forcing people to build things God never asked to be built. And he's not paying them for it. They're just forced to do it. Oh, you're not slaves, though. You can still have your property and your land. No, he enslaved the other nations, which he was supposed to run out and kill, not enslave. Because God's, look, let's just go on. He says this. As for all the people who remained 
of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, who were not Israelites. These were all the people that were supposed to be driven out of Israel. Why? Why did God say, do not keep these people around? Anybody? Why did he say in the Old Testament? Why did he say, if you keep these people around, it's going to be bad for you? Why? They're going to corrupt you. You're going to make high places to sacrifice to their gods to keep the peace so that you can have the slaves, so that you can keep them. How you... Yep. You're not supposed to enslave them, Solomon. You're supposed to push them out. You're supposed to be like, you can go. Thank you. Be gone. You don't use people. Can I just tell you the church is using people all the time today? We won't confront people in their sin. We won't disciple people. We won't deal with the issues in their life because we're afraid for their souls. We just want to use them so we can get more gold and build more stuff. And it breaks my heart. Because then we have an entire generation that sees it and they're leaving the church in droves. 75% of Gen Z and Gen Y are leaving the church and never returning. Because they see it. Who's going to stand? Who's going to call this stuff out and just see this is what the Bible says? Instead, we celebrate Solomon. We all want an America like Solomon built. He goes on and he says, Solomon imposed forced labor on them. This is the way until today. But Solomon did not consign the Israelites to slavery. They were soldiers, his servants, his commanders, his captains, commanders of the chariots of his cavalry. These were the deputies who were over Solomon's work. 550 ruled the people doing the work. Then look at what Solomon does. Then Solomon took a census of all the foreign men in the land of Israel after the census that his father David had conducted. And the total was 153,600. Solomon made 70,000 other porters, 80,000 studded in the mountains, uh, 3,600 supervisors to make the people work. He wasn't supposed to take a census. God didn't ask Solomon to take a census. I gotta count, I gotta go with my numbers, I gotta, I gotta know how to make everything work. How about just trust the Lord? By the way, the census that David took caused a plague on the nation that killed like tens of thousands of people because he took a census he wasn't supposed to take. He goes on to say this in 2 Chronicles and 1 Kings 8 and in 1 Kings 5. It says, King Solomon put together a fleet of ships at Ezon's Geber, which is near Eloth, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. With the fleet, Hiram sent his servants, experienced seamen, along with Solomon's servants. They went to Ophar and acquired gold there, tons, and delivered it to Solomon. So you create a fleet to go take the message of great Yahweh to the nations. Oh, no, no, no. You created a fleet to go get gold in God's name. You know, I'm reminded of a place and the people in South America. This sounds really familiar to the church. Like many years later that the men of the church were coming to the new world to bring the gospel. Oh, and take all the gold. When will we learn that we're falling for the same traps over and over again. God's like, don't do this. And then he goes on and says, Solomon began to build the temple for the Lord in the 480th year after the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of his reign over Israel, in the second month, in the month of Ziv, 
The temple that Solomon built for the Lord was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. The word of the Lord came to Solomon and says this, as for this temple you're building, as for this temple I told you to build, as for this temple that I asked you to build, no, he specifically says, as for this temple you're building, like, big whoop de doo da Like, as for this church you're building, like, eh, whatever. Look what he says. If you walk in my statutes, observe my ordinances, and keep all my commands by walking them, I'll fulfill the promise, my promises to you, which I made to your father David. I will live among the Israelites and not abandon my people Israel. In other words, I really don't care about this temple. I just want you to obey me, please. Why do you keep trying to prove something? Just obey me. We just walk in my ways. I don't care if you build a temple or not. Fine, build a temple. Here's the plans. God actually gave David the plans because he said, look, if you're going to have a temple, then you're going to build it the right way. Just like he said, if you're going to have a king, you're going to have the king I want you to have. See, that's the way God does. He never lets us have our way completely. He always turns it around for us to have to deal with ourselves. Then he goes on and it says, look at what Jesus or what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. For we know that if our temporary earthly dwelling is destroyed, the word Paul actually uses there is tabernacle, tent. If our earthly tent is being destroyed, we have a building from God. You don't need to build one. Jesus has already gone to prepare a place for you, and where he is, he will bring you there also. If it were not so, I wouldn't tell you, Jesus said. And then he says, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, in this body, desiring to put on our dwelling from heaven. Since we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Instead, we groan while we're in this tent, this tabernacle, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. And the one who has prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us his spirit as a down payment. So we are always confident. Underline that. Always confident. Solomon wasn't always confident, so he had to get more gold, build more things, sacrifice some more high places, get more wives. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. A thousand women weren't enough. And know that while we are at home in this tabernacle, this tent, we are away from the Lord. See, that's why God wanted them to keep a tabernacle. The purpose of a tabernacle was to show them there's nothing permanent for me here. Remember that for yourself. And they had to get him in a temple as quick as possible because we don't like that feeling of temporary. Do you know the number one conversation I've had with people for 12 years, over 12 years about our church, is why don't you have a building yet? When are you going to get a building? When are you going to buy a property? I'm like, we have multiple buildings. You own a house. I own a house. You own a house. We got buildings all over town we meet in. It's great. Oh, and we get to rent this building for almost nothing. And then serve the community around us through it. Why would I want a building? We get to give 15% of every dollar that comes away to missions. You want to know why? Because we don't have a building. I don't have to fix the furnace. I give it to missionaries. And people look at us like we're the weirdest church ever. And I'm like, I just, I, I'm not against buildings. If we, we were given one, I'd be like, thank you. Like I'm, but I'm not going to go like try to build one. And I've always told people, if we ever build a building and we have to get a mortgage and get a loan for a building, our building campaign will be titled, Join Us in Slavery. Because the Bible says the borrower is slave to the lender. 
It's not wrong to be in slavery. God put his people in slavery a few times to teach them a lesson. Not wrong to be in slavery. I'm enslaved to my home. I so want to get it paid off. We're close. I don't call it, oh, it's the biggest blessing in the world. God just blessed us with this great facility. No, Old National Bank blessed you. Give them the credit that's due to them. They gave you the million-dollar loan. Praise them. It's not wrong. But why do we always spin it? Just say what it is. That's exactly what Paul's doing. He says, for we walk by faith, not by sight, and we are confident and satisfied to be out of the body. Are you confident? Are you satisfied to be out of the body? Are you satisfied with coming here and have to clean up every Sunday? Matt, does that satisfy you? Are you happy about it? Would you like to have a building where you've got a janitor staff and you just walk in and your office is clean? The building's all set up. We don't have to put up lights and tear them down and change our chair configuration because we can't figure it out. And, and I'm not judging churches that do that. Hear me out. I'm not. God God was faithful to his people. He was faithful to Solomon in the midst of the mess. I just try to look at scripture and say, okay, they did that. How about we not do that? I don't know how it's going to turn out. I may be wrong. I may be getting this all wrong. I'm just telling you. But I'm not up here telling you that we've got it all right. I'm just telling you, I'm looking at scripture and saying, this is why we do what we do. I, I don't know how to do it any other way. And if we do something different, we'll be honest with you about why we're doing it differently. Then he goes on in Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes, at the end of his life, he's miserable because he realizes that he has built all this wealth. He's amassed all these things. He's got all of it. At the end of his life, Solomon says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember? How old was Solomon when he asked what God should give him? He was a youth. Solomon's thinking back to when God said, what should I give you? And he's like, oh, I squandered it. You gave it to me and I squandered it. Oh, people, remember, remember your youth and the humility and the desire for God and the hunger and the desperation you had. Don't lose that because I lost it, Solomon says. And then he goes on and he says, but beyond these, my son, be warred. There is no end to the making of many books and much study wearies the body. Praise the Lord, the semester's almost over. Okay, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. It's just simple. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. And Solomon is writing that knowing that his story is written in Kings and Chronicles for everybody to see the good and bad. Solomon's writing that down and goes, I know everybody's going to hear about the good and the bad because it's been written down and they're going to figure it out and I'm a disaster. He goes on. And this is what Solomon built. Look at this. He built the most holy place. It was overlaid with 45,000 pounds of gold. The bronze pillars were 27 feet high, 7.5, or I'm sorry, 27 feet by 7.5 feet high on top of that. 18 inches wide. They're called Jachin and Boaz, which means the Lord will establish in his strength. He created a reservoir that's 11,000 gallons. That's like a 15 by 30 pool. Bronze water carts, 10 of them. Bronze basins and other utensils, bronze works, gold furnishings. Look at all the gold and the treasures of the Lord's temple. All these things God didn't ask for. God already had a tabernacle and all the stuff was there. And Solomon's like, we got to do it bigger and better and better. And it cost him everything. Here's what Jesus said. Do not collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy 
and where thieves break in and steal. Do you realize that the temple was torn down stone by stone and Jesus prophesied it was happening? You want to know why they tore it down stone by stone? Because the soldiers didn't have anything to do after they conquered the Jews after Jesus. And so they said, hey, if you want to take down that temple and then melt all the stones to get the gold off the inside, go ahead. And that's exactly what the Roman soldiers did. They took every single stone of the temple down to get to the gold that it was inlaid with that God never asked them to inlay it with. And he says, look at this, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we see Solomon's treasure and we see his heart. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon sees his treasure and his heart. Jesus also says, then I said to my, then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up. He's talking about this guy who stored up all these goods for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Is it wrong to be rich? Is it wrong to have treasures? No. The question is, why do you have them and what you're using them for? And Solomon justified everything he had for God. And they were all things God said he shouldn't have. Be very careful what you put God's name on. It says, in the 11th year of the reign, the 8th month, in the month of Bull, the temple was completed in every detail according to every specification. So he built it in seven years. Wow, that's impressive. Look at where Solomon's heart is. Solomon completed his entire palace complex after 13 years. Seven years to build God's house. <laughs> My man's going to take 13 years. It's got to be good. I got to look, look good. I got to show the kings that I'm a king. And how many of us will spend most of our life building things for ourselves and our retirement and our family and ignore the church? The church gets the leftovers every time. The church is the bride of Christ. The bride. A beautiful bride. Messy? Yeah. But beautiful. It goes on. Chronicles says the weight of the gold that came to Solomon was 25 tons and besides that was brought by the merchants and traders all the Arab kings and governors the land also brought gold and silver to Solomon shields of gold a large ivory throne that he had overlaid with pure gold cups of gold there was no silver since it was considered nothing King Solomon surpassed all the kings in world riches and wisdom and all the th kings of the world wanted an audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart each of them would bring his own gift items of silver gold clothing weapons spices horses and mules as an annual tribute. You want to know what I bet Solomon wasn't telling them and why they kept bringing tribute? Because he didn't tell them you're going to perish if you don't submit to Yahweh. He gave them great earthly wisdom, which is what they wanted. He didn't look at them and say, if you don't submit to Yahweh, you're done. And we can be the same way if we're not careful. Because if you tell kings, my God's coming for you and he's going to destroy your kingdom, they don't really want to partner with you anymore. They don't want to bring you gold. They don't want to bring you treasures. They don't want your wisdom. They're like, your wisdom stinks. Thank you. I'm leaving. Goes on and he says, Jeremiah, I have treated my people's brokenness superficially. They being the leaders, claiming peace, peace when there is no peace. Do not trust deceitful words, chanting, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And I replied, oh no, Lord God, the prophets are telling them you won't see the sword or suffer famine. 
I will certainly give you true peace in this place. But the Lord said to me, these prophets are prophesying a lie in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak to them. They're prophesying to you a false vision, worthless divination, the deceit of their own minds. And we do the same thing today. Jesus said, if you follow me, you're going to pick up a of gold and wear it beautifully around your neck for all to see your wonderful, beautiful gold. No, a wooden, you're going to die. Like, you're going to suffer for my namesake. Like, the Bible couldn't be more clear. All of our heroes of the New Testament, they all died martyrs' deaths. Like, Revelation's awful. Like, have you read the book? Like, and we look at that and we go, oh no, peace, peace, the temple, the temple. God's going to come back. He's going he to make everything better. No, everything's going to get so bad that God's going to come back and make everything gone. That's what the Bible says. Does that mean there aren't times of revival and better? Absolutely. But that's not our goal. Our goal is the glory of God and his coming again. And getting people ready for him coming back. That's our goal. And if that's not the goal, then you're a diviner. You're not speaking what God spoke. John 2.14, in the temple complex, Jesus found people selling. <laughs> we sell everything in the church. Don't we? We sell everything. Buy this, buy that, buy this. One of the things we do at our church, everything's free. I will never have Matt Shockney Ministries. I won't. I want to have like a side hustle ministry that all Matt Shockney ministries you can buy. And if you send $5, we'll send you a prayer hanky. Not going to happen. You want to know why? I have already been paid for every message I've ever given. I'm not double dipping. Every message I give by this church has been paid for by this church. It is the church's property, not Matt Shockney's. Because I've already been paid for it. And the church will give it away for free. I don't need a dime. If I write a book, I'm not going to sell for big profits. Give it away for free. He says, after making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the church, the temple complex, with their sheep and oxen. He poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. I always get the picture of that happening in here and the offering boxes going out. I don't know where the sheep are coming from. You guys, I don't know. Anyway, and then he says, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. So the Jews replied to him, what sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? Who do you think you are? You're not some king. Jesus answered, destroy this sanctuary and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this sanctuary took 46 years to build. That's Herod's second temple, our third temple, Herod's temple. And you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. It's always been about a tent. It's not about stone and gold. It's always been about a tent. He goes on and says this. The reason the first, when the, when the people were preaching as we wrap up in Acts and they're going out to plant churches. Last night at the Hispanic group, Pastor Leonid preached from Acts 9 and talked about the church in Acts going out to plant churches into the world and to reach the world for Christ. This is the early church. Look at what got Stephen killed. Stephen was the first Martyr, okay? He's the first martyr. Here was the message that Stephen gave that got him killed. But it was Solomon who built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven 
is my throne and, my, and earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is my resting place? Did not my hands make all things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Jeremiah, peace, peace. No, you killed him for it because he told you what was really coming, the truth about what was going to happen. They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one who betrays and murders, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. They're like, we got to kill this guy. And Stephen gets killed. He's the first martyr. Why? Because he challenges the temple. He challenges the peace of the Roman Empire. We built this 46 years in peace. We got peace with the Romans. It's all going well. You don't come in here and upset it. And he's like, and you know what? As a pastor, I've seen more fights about money and buildings than any two things in the church my entire life. What color is the carpet going to be? What color is the paint? Why'd you spend that? Why'd you do? In Acts 17, this is Paul speaking to the Gentiles in Athens as he's planting churches. He says, the Lord who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by humans' hands as though he needs anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries of where they live. One nationality, there are no races. We are one in Christ. That was very offensive in Paul's days, just like it is in ours. He did this so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. Let me ask you, do you feel like God is far from you? God is asking you, I promise. He is asking you personally, what should I give you? And he is waiting for your response. And he's waiting to see if you're going to respond like Solomon did in the beginning or whether you're going to respond like Solomon did in the middle of his life and he forgot God. Can I just tell you, God wants to give you himself. He wants to give you something that no one can take away and that no one can control. And he wants to give you a family, a body, a people that will live for him. That is his desire. And he wants in his sight to see that go out into all the world. Whatever you want God to give you, could you just make it him? Did you do what's right? That you have the right judgments? That you trust him? Don't be like Solomon and get sidetracked. Because in the end, it all gets torn down. There is no temple today. There's not a bunch of, it's a mess. And Jesus says, I want you. I don't want all the stuff. I don't want the high places. I just want your heart. And I want to give you me as a promise that is unbroken. I will be with you. I will come into you. I will give you my wisdom. And there's a bunch of ifs that I might give you. If you all behave, but we don't all behave, so we don't get the ifs, because the ifs weren't just for Solomon to behave, it was for the whole nation to behave. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the challenge that this is to us, Lord. This is probably new information for some people sitting out here. It probably pricks some deeply held beliefs or things that may be difficult 
Lord, I know it does for me. But that's like every time I read your word. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would deal with what you want to give us this morning. You want to give us you. You want to give us a relationship, and then you want to give us a people that will help us to be more like you. That we will stand and we will fight for you, not with chariots, not with horses, not with swords, but in the power of the Holy Spirit of a surrendered life. And so, Lord, this morning, if there's anyone here who's not surrendered to you, I pray today would be the day, like Solomon, they would finally say, I'm done. I have nothing to offer. I desperately need you to show me who I am, to show me who the world is, to show me who you are. I surrender. And they would accept you as the payment for the sin that they deserve, just like Solomon went and immediately made sacrifices in Jerusalem because he recognized the sin in his life. Lord, I pray we would do the same. And for those of us who are believers, I pray we would really question and ask some hard questions about what we're chasing. And we bring those before you and lay them at your feet because you are God and you love us and you care for us in your name.